Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. All right, Joel, what do you think about the prospect? of getting another generational basketball talent that does not want to be in our country at all by the end of this week. I feel like Damian Lillard would be a different person than uh, Kawhi Leonard in that he would, um, wouldn't share the ball as well. He would, he would be the most disgruntled. He would be vocally disgruntled about being where he is. Yeah. Whereas Kawhi, kind of would shut up and play well he's just known as being and he had no leverage from the standpoint that he had been like people probably don't remember this especially if you're not a basketball fan but he had just come off of a horrific injury had played nine games the prior year and the whole reason why he got traded was because how he felt he was mismanaged from the injury standpoint and why he got traded so did he want to go to Toronto no but at the same time I think what ended up happening obviously is that everyone else was lowballing to get the player and Toronto had the best package and said, yeah, we'll do it. And they just banked 100% on him wanting to prove himself and say that that was, I'm assuming that was probably the the market. Okay. You're here for a year minimum, like maximum. If you want to be, let's make the most out of it. You want to make money. You want to get back up to max value as they say in the NBA contract lingo. Mm -hmm. And you have the opportunity to do it with a really, really good supporting cast. And so, and he's not someone who is a media darling going to be out there on social media or in, you know, traditional media talking about it. Whereas now you have a player who has literally had the most public outside of maybe James Harden and a couple others in the NBA who have the Kevin Durant kind of thing, like vocally said where they want to go and what they want to do. No one's really forced themselves out like Lillard has in the past, or at least created the narrative to say I'm only going to go to one place, and if you don't trade me there, then I'm not going to be happy or I'm not going to perform. And obviously the NBA has had a lot of pushback on that, and they're, I think, just working with the PA to design some rules around what you can and cannot share uh, from that standpoint because obviously it's not good for the game to for the players to have that much power to say, well, I'm, I'm not I'm just going to sit here, but my contract's guaranteed, but I can't there's no way to, I guess, renege on that contract if I'm at least showing up and sitting on the bench. So he's, as of right now, I think all the experts are talking about, in realistic terms, he's either going to show up to Portland and play it out and just be, again, does Portland want that? Does he want, they want a disgruntled player, et cetera, or he's going to be in Miami. Now, 
as of yesterday you shared with me i think it's actually it was pretty viral news yesterday about toronto becoming the front runner for and from the package standpoint i guess i'm gonna defer to the experts obviously in terms of what they can offer and how valuable that might be the nba draft picks and compensation structures are very complicated and in order to come up with a great package you can basically go out like something like 10 years with draft picks essentially to give firsts and swaps and all this other stuff so apparently toronto has what they would need in order to do it they have enough talent and salary to match with with dame to get him here and on paper and i was talking with a a guy from work yesterday who's a huge nba nerd and he was basically laying out he's like that actually might be a better like one-two punch like having dame lillard and pascal siakam for example and what you, the NBA is built on duos or trios for the most part, right? Yep. So if you have, uh, we talked about this in sports in general and how NBA is, you know, kind of the most predictable sport in terms of if you have great talent, then like, I, I guess I'm coming at it from like the sports betting perspective now. It's like, if you have great talent who is playing most games who are, <laughs> who are a good match, then it's pretty predictable kind of 60 to 70% of the time, whatever the, <laughs> predicted outcome is going to be is it's it is what's going to happen whereas there's not as much luck involved when you have that much talent on the floor and talent that works decently hard is, is going to trump people who work hard with no talent every day of the week and in basketball that can be a great that can that can leapfrog you a bunk a um, above a bunch of teams pretty quickly so you're looking at a toronto team who would be you know very mid to use a very current term a mid team and this would springboard them into relevancy and probably into the top four in their conference on paper at least in terms of the match between these some of the players they would have offensively and so you can see why toronto wants to do it like i mean at the end of the day you got people that are fighting for their jobs i mean they kind of they're coming off at a high of the nba championship pre-pandemic and it's like everyone's obviously the golden boys at that time, but they've now they've moved on from their coach that won. Um, Masai Ujiri, who's a pretty visible face in this country in terms of his sports success, as well as what he's done kind of humanitarian wise, etc. But even he's obviously under the gun. It's like, okay, like we were successful. We were in the playoffs for a lot of years. Now we've had a couple down years, three kind of three down years in a row. And that's just the ebbs and flow of sport. Like one day it's not what you did for me today or what you did for me yesterday is what you're going to need to me for me tomorrow and you're going to be judged whether or not you can be successful and continue to drive the business and this is one way in the nba the only way to really increase relevancy increase your your business is by acquiring talent and toronto unfortunately has had a really hard time doing that outside of drafting and developing so Whenever these kind of disgruntled players come up, Toronto always goes to the top of the list because they're like, screw it, we'll roll the dice. We'll see if we can. He's gone in contract for two more years. So maybe they can get this guy. I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's smoke and mirrors. I think it's a, probably a ploy potentially by the agent in, in this case to try and force Miami's hand to up their offer to get Portland to say yes and eventually move him where he wants to go, which is kind of a, you know an old school trick in terms of just creating the market that you want. But at the same time, it's probably going to be able to pull this off. And uh, again, low key rumors if you follow the NBA is that um, I mentioned the name earlier, Masai Ujiri, who's the president, basically kind of runs the team. 
he's from Africa, has a huge footprint in NBA Africa and the development there, and has a great relationship with a former MVP by the name of Giannis. I'm not going to... Could you imagine? And I know that's his plan. So he's off in two years, essentially. You get Dame Lillard there on contract and say, hey, Giannis, what do you think about matching up with, you know, these two guys and creating a new big three in the East. I don't know. I love it. So I'm on that rumor train all day. Love it. In pie in the sky idea. My, the realistic part side of me says this is not going to happen. And this is a pipe dream. And again, they're just, he, Toronto is being used as a leverage piece to try and force the hand of Miami to really get what the player wants. And this really comes back to that conversation we talked about a few months ago, probably, just in terms of like where the power lies in all the four big sports in terms of players it's, versus owners. It lies in tax rates and beaches. <laughs> it, it does. It does. Especially when you have the, like we talk about free agency and like the, the power that's there now. Like that's always been there for, for players in general. I mean, the free agency is not a new concept, but the way that, the decision-making has changed so much in the past, I'd say, five to ten years. In the NHL, we can see it. They're attracting, like you said, low tax. So Florida, um, Texas. Texas, Tennessee, et cetera. Vegas. Vegas. They're Nevada, yeah. So the, the, all these zero state tax jurisdictions that are able to say, well, we can pay you less money gross. You take more home net. You get to live in the sun. I can't. Where's I mean, the downside? The argument's not really easy. So same thing with Dame here. He wants to go to Miami. I'm assuming like Florida, good tax, good team. I mean, that's a good benefit too. Obviously, I think you do. That's definitely. A, we're not going to say that every player is just looking for the most money sometimes, especially when you're talking about NBA players who are. Well, yeah, and everybody else wants to go there too. So at least you know you're always going to have a big two, big three. Exactly. And so all this power shifting. To the, I mean, it has to give the owners some pause, unless you're in those markets, of course. Didn't, but. The, didn't the Milwaukee Bucks just sell? Recently. Not, like, just this year, I don't believe. Anyway, but and, I mean, there's they, some big risk in small market with large superstar talent mm-hmm. with upcoming contracts. There's a lot of risk there. Now, owning a, Well, especially when you can literally say, I'm out. Like, yeah. that does not happen in any other sport. Like, NBA is like, I don't want to play here. <laughs> it's like, but you have a contract to play here. And he's, nah. That's nice. Yeah. I signed it. <laughs> I mean. I'll sit on the bench. <laughs> it's all good. So, I've also just made 100 mil net over the last five yeah. years. So if I have to sit at home and not get paid for a bit, that's cool. But I'm assuming you don't want this distraction and you don't want you don't want a bad asset on your books because my value is only going to deteriorate in terms of a trade package, the longer you wait on this. So holding, obviously, like if you're a bench player, you don't have the same power. But at the elite levels of sport, there's really no power struggle like there is right now in the NBA. And that's probably, we talked previously about all of the the strides that that sport has made and how much of an international impact they have now. This is one thing I think that is definitely bugging them, especially when you talk about, you know, call it one third of the league is made up of these preferential 
locations and and big market teams the rest are struggling for relevancy and they want it to be a fair playing field yeah, toronto needs some global warming real real quick <laughs> um they need to turn on uh the the, the beach on the lake needs to really improve really itself, improve itself. Yeah. <laughs> not that it's not nice it's just not comparable to florida um with all that said, there's a lot of sporting news that has kind of gone on here. I'm not going to talk about Verstappen's win because I'm pretty sick of F1. Um, it's I'm honestly the, interested. I'm I I'll be on record in saying this is probably the worst outcome of a year for the sport that it could have had, given all of its hype that went into the year. Isn't he a great teammate too? Just Verstappen's a great guy. He Huge he's fan. a killer. I I'm like he's like MJ. Yeah. He's not like you don't need to be liked. You don't need to be. He's a talent level is crazy. It's evident. Last week, I think I was chatting with you. He beat everybody by half a second during qualifying. Beat his teammate by like three quarters of a second. Obviously, same setup. All this stuff. The talent is undeniable. They're falling into the same trap that they've had previous to this when like Lewis was winning all of his. The team is so far and above everybody else the red bull team right now and it is incredible that there can be that big of a discrepancy when you mix talent and the better car because you're you can see that directly that it's it's the mix of the two things now like i love dominance like i i've told you before like i thought i got into the nba like really heavily when it was Cavs and warrior you knew those two teams were gonna be in the finals for the next four years or whatever it was i loved it i it was great intrigue even though as a casual fan or whatever at that time, you knew the, what the end outcome was going to be in terms of the final two teams, more or less. Or like at least that, that was like the betting favorite. And it was like really, if you were just to tune in every year during playoffs or at the finals, you'd be like, really? It's the same two teams every single year? That seems crazy. Is that good for the sport? And I would say at that point it was because it created this like dynasty talk. We're in like an individual sport where in F1 anyways, I feel like a lot of what the intrigue was over the past three, four years was some of it was because of parity. There was an actual fight for the championship. But the other thing is that people have come to realize that like if you, okay, I really love X driver on X team and, you know, they were kind of at least competitive with the rest of the field. There's no, like you're fighting for second, you're fighting for third. And I know as an as a F one fan from yesteryear that that's kind of always been the case. Like you have to cheer for not first place; you cheer for what your team can achieve, right. which might be fifth place or fourth place, and that would be an amazing result. But in terms of the like what North American sports is based off of, it's your either first or your last. And when you see the same guy winning every single week, which is again, it's amazing to see dominance. But I think in this specific case. It's not working. It's non-competitive with dominance. Like there's no one even close, which is not like he fun. needs to have a mechanical failure for there to be an issue. Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm pulling for it every week. <laughs> um, let's move into markets here. We've had a pretty severe sell-off, and yeah, it hasn't looked great. No, for anybody looking at their their portfolio of recent, unless you're in gold or commodities, you're likely getting your butt spanked, and that's. I mean, not to be assumed. This is what we kind of expected. We've been talking about for the last six weeks is the fact that um, the hot portion of the government cycle has come to an end. Mm -hmm. The choppiness begins. Positioning with policy has started. The unfortunate reality is is that inflation has been very sticky. Employment has stayed 
full, and we have what seems to be no end in sight with regards to the, the confidence of the consumer and the deterioration of what is required to see interest rates come down. And we're now pricing in equities over a longer period of time at a higher interest rate, which means your discounted cash flows need to be priced differently, which then tells you that equities need to be come down in a price-to-earnings multiple. We're now sitting on an S&P 500 trailing uh, PE that is right around the historical norm, which makes a lot of sense given the fact that we're at what looks like long-term 4 to 5% Fed funds rate. So... That's all to be said that if you aren't a, in a diversified portfolio that owns commodities and owns um, different portions of an asset allocation, which for most people over the last 15 years has not included commodities, it's almost been always mm-hmm. exclusively been a 60-40, 40% bonds, 60% equities, you're getting hammered now. Um, the Dow Jones is up a, a whopping, I think, two-ish percent this year. Um, at one point, the, the NASDAQ was up nearly... 30-some-odd percent. So um, the S&P sitting around 12, the TSX barely hovering around 5. It's not been – it's been a tough two months, and it's been expected given the stickiness of inflation mm-hmm. and the the verbiage coming from our Bank of Canada, the Fed. And when you then start to extrapolate that into Europe, Europe is inarguably in a recession right now. They have – the inability to continue to cut rates while inflation is still rampant. I'm much more concerned about that portion of the globe than I am about North America, relatively. But that doesn't change the fact that we need to be paying attention to two things, and that's back to what it was a year ago, and that was the VIX and the U.S. dollar. So long as inflation and employment stays high or tight, we need to pay attention to those two things so that we can continue to allocate our portfolios appropriately. So... What does that mean? I mean, in my opinion, I think a few things are going to start to contribute to a default. I was going to say, Jack, should just start up our podcast from nine months ago. And yeah, <laughs> it's what it feels like, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't anticipate that we're going to see the same sort of sell-off like we did in 2022. Um, we're coming from much lower multiple. Not only that, inflation is insanely low, especially in Canada, when you then apply it relatively to the rest of the world. We actually have... Re- like our infl- our interest rates are above where inflation is. That is a strong position to be in. Um, the same thing in the United States. So relatively, we look good. If you want to be invested somewhere that's going to show lower volatility, you're going to be you're going to want to be in North America. Um, but what you're going to see is is the price of equities have to come down, and the 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 yields or the dividend payouts on those securities are going to go up because the price is dumb. So you're going to see a seven eight percent yield on Enbridge. You're going to see a six five to seven percent yield on your banks. That's where the market is expecting equity prices to go, so that it can give investors um, a reason to not be lending their money to the government. Mm-hmm. Like if you can get a free risk free rate by lending to the United States government or the Canadian government at five mm-hmm. on, the short, on a short-duration bond, why would you give it to J.P. Morgan or to the um, CIBC or BMO if they're not yielding above that? You need to see those yields be higher, so equities are going to, therefore, sell off a bit. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at right now. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for the last six months, you likely would have owned commodities going into this. You like Gold has dramatically outperformed bonds over the last three months, 
to the tune of like 8%. It's been a pretty great run. I mean, and that's just staying flat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think moving forward, the, the, the way in which your asset allocation sits is going to be a little bit more diversified. I think more asset managers are going to do that. Institutions are repositioning. Alternatives are becoming more popular. And when you start to then look at the X top seven, big seven companies, um, without a sell-off there, these just don't look that attractive. So I was going to say on the commodity front, I, I, I've now seen, I believe commercials. Is it for the World Gold Council? Have you seen that? <laughs> well, like, if literally anyone on... watches BNN, there's always, there's always been a, a gold selling. Or, Has there? Okay. Because yeah. I've seen it on, it must have been on like Sportsnet. Well, you know, nobody's so. advertising on, on, on global when you got gold <laughs> ETFs sold, being sold there. Um, but I kind of want to pivot to the big seven and talk a little bit about Amazon. It's made some serious waves the last couple days. Um, this, earlier this morning, Lena Khan brought forward a, um, like an FTC suit with regards to their anti-competitive um, marketplace. Yeah, Google's tossing in, in injunctions or whatever you call them, left, right, and center. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the legal speak here, so yeah. um, excuse me. Injunction sounds pretty good. Yeah. So the FTC <laughs> is suing Amazon. Um, and, I mean, I'm going to read a really important passage from the, I don't know, we'll call it the complaint. Mm-hmm. The case is about the illegal course of exclusionary conduct Amazon deploys to block competition, stunt rivals growth, and cement its dominance. The elements of this strategy are mutually reinforcing. Amazon uses a a set of anti-discounting tactics to prevent rivals from growing by offering lower prices. And it uses coercive tactics involving its order fulfillment service to prevent rivals from gaining the scale they need to meaningfully compete. Amazon deploys the interconnected strategy to block off every major avenue of competition, including price, product, product selection, quality, and innovation in the relevant markets for online superstores and online marketplace services. So it's hard to not view that as being an issue, Mm -hmm. but the pushback will likely be that Amazon also has integrated all of its own products. So they have a, a loyalty program of Prime so that you can benefit from the lower lowering of prices, the, I mean, free delivery. They have bundling under that same, same name of Prime, but then also having um, uh, Amazon Basics where they sell additional product. They aren't, I don't believe, and Lena Khan has now a oh in a billion record, as she just recently went up against Microsoft with with Activision and then Facebook earlier this year and lost. I don't see her winning this one either. She continues to to take the approach of this one I believe is stronger than the last two, but she's missing the big the big one here and it's it's always been the Apple App Store and the Google App Store. And I just can't see how she's going to end up winning this one as as a consumer who uses Amazon a lot. I don't view it as being something that has made my life worse. If anything, I view it as having a more competitive um, pricing or it gives me more visibility into competitive pricing. I do recognize that Amazon doesn't have the best prices, but I also have the ability to go to Walmart or to Best Buy or to 
any number of online websites to buy these goods. So unless you're completely incompetent and don't know how well, to shop. I feel like that's one thing though. That's like, it's the, what's been like built into the fabric of our lives a little bit. And like I, the, the pandemic didn't necessarily help us at all considering we were doing way or even people who did not previously use online platforms to purchase things. They, you know, obviously a huge influx of that there. But the fact that like you just talked about, if I'm not incompetent about shopping around or doing, you know, um, more than 30 seconds of, of, of research into something or research is the wrong word, but just shopping around for something to make sure that I am not spending more than I should be on something like that's incumbent on us as a consumer. Right. And it's like, we're, you're, you're passing this buck off to say, well, Amazon's just so visible. It makes it so easy. And it's like, it's on your phone, it's on your computer. It's the, the convenience of it trumps everything else. And we don't everyone because it's because they've built this amazing, easy to use platform and service then they should be punished for it like i have a hard time there's probably certain aspects of this especially in the details i know you just read an excerpt of it and like i agree with you i think there there is probably some really strong conversation around it but if i'm just being objective and thinking about it too i think what they've done is a great thing and but it's still in, it's in it's incumbent on the person using the service to realize whether or not am i paying the best price am i am i Am I extending myself beyond my means? Am I am I getting am I getting the right deal? I guess, and I don't. Yeah, it's I don't I don't see it going in a positive direction in terms of a of an outcome in, in that case. But yeah, so I digress. I I just it's just really hard to to for that to be completely argued in in her favor. I would say yeah, and I, where I believe there to be a anti-competitive argument here is actually from the seller's point of view yeah and and their inclusion in the amazon prime store and for delivery and um there's an additional excerpt from the wall street journal article that i'm reading that i think is quite damning and sounds terrible on its face and i'm gonna i'm gonna read a, a portion of it now one set of tactics stifles the ability of rivals to attract shoppers by offering lower prices. Amazon deploys a sophisticated surveillance network of web crawlers that constantly monitor the internet, searching for discounts that might threaten Amazon's empire. When Amazon detects elsewhere online a product that is cheaper than a seller's offer for the same product on Amazon, Amazon punishes that seller. It does so to prevent the rivals from gaining business by offering shoppers or sellers lower prices. So, that sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. However, I could see that as being a something they could do and would do. So there are, in my opinion, some valid arguments here to push up against my Amazon bias. And it's my, my guess, and I don't know anything here, that there will be areas in which she can win Lena Khan, that is, the FTC head. And um, there's going to be changes, probably some fines that Amazon are going to owe against. But in my opinion, um, it's not going to be because of the anti-competitive nature in which it doesn't improve the outcome for consumers. I think it's actually more so from the anti-competitive nature of how they treat their competition on the selling front. So, yeah, and their vendors. Yeah, they, 100%. Yeah, and yeah. sadly, they built an infrastructure at Amazon, which just speaks to their, I think, moat that if you aren't selling on Amazon, you're not likely going to have a business 
and that if you can't scale to the size of Best Buy or Costco, you're unlikely to be able to compete. And that is anti-competitive. But you can make that argument across almost all lines of business when you start to look at the advertising business versus YouTube and, and Facebook, when you start to look at even the grocery business when in, in, in its com- um, comparable to Kroger or in our country, Save On Foods Empire, it's hard for me to to not just kind of throw other examples out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Canada, we're fighting about grocery stores and how um, somehow their three to five percent margins that they make on their food is is the reason for why people can't afford um, food in this country. Whereas in the United States, they this seems to be a sticking point for Lena Khan, and she wrote something I believe in 2017, where she was specifically identifying Amazon as being her, her target. So um, I've long been a believer that Amazon is, of the big seven, the most likely to be around my entire lifetime, mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. Um, and I think that that is likely to continue. And the reason for that is because of their moat. And Lena Khan is directly attacking that right now. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, in other Amazon news, mm. they also bought Anthropic, or didn't buy, but invested $4 billion in Anthropic, making them the, uh, or a- it makes Amazon's AWS their primary um, cloud provider and infrastructure provider for a leading um, chat GPT or open AI competitor. Google has their own with Bard. Microsoft made this very, a very similar investment with OpenAI and ChatGPT and Amazon just did the exact same thing with the AI lab Anthropic. The people that founded Anthropic are direct descendants from Google's um, AI lab and and, um, OpenAI's. So they are, and in my my opinion, fairly competitive Mm -hmm. and creating something very similar. And it's just, it's interesting to see um, which companies have, have decided that they require this sort of functionality. And in my opinion, as someone who's currently outfitting their, their new house with a smart home oh, and yeah. with security You're and all those sorts that. of things, yeah. I'm even more excited with what Amazon's going to be able to produce because I'm, I'm an Alexa person. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, the Apple home is awful. Mm. The Google one apparently is pretty good. It um, is, yeah. I was going to say, like, Siri sucks. You hear that, Siri? <laughs> She's definitely listening, but it's yeah. okay if Apple listens. It's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I'm 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 optimistic because because mm-hmm. for the last ten years it's almost as an Amazon investor you you would assume they've been burning money on their their AI and Alexa investment. When mm-hmm. you look at their voice portion of their balance sheet, you're just like, what is that black hole? They're spending billions of dollars on this voice activation, artificial intelligence, yeah, yeah, to to better serve you at the home. In my opinion, it is the most or the number one untapped place in our lifestyle, or currently. When you think about where the phone doesn't have any dominance, it's in our home. It's the only place where you will openly talk at something and not feel stupid. It's a place where I don't believe the phone will dominate. When I'm at my house, I'm not on my phone as much as I might be on another device, whether it be a television, my computer, Mm -hmm. iPad, whatever. The infrastructure and, and the platform that you have at your home is open for competition, whereas your the cell phone platform is owned. It's yeah. done. It is over. And I believe that Amazon likely is to, to going to win here. When you look at Ring and then its integration into the rest, 
Uh, even right now, I'm buying a Lorex system for my house because I live closer to downtown and the homelessness problem in Edmonton is prevalent. You, I require cameras. It integrates incredibly well into the Amazon Alexa system. Mm -hmm. Their open platform is incredible. Mm -hmm. And when you go to look at the apps that they have, it's shocking. They have like hundreds of thousands of apps, which just tells you that it's, they've, they've decided that they're going to be the platform for the home. And that's an interesting open opportunity. It feels like a call option on where the rest of, um, a lot of GDP is going to be built, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And it's interesting that the integration between what you do have in your phone, I would, I, I think, like I, this is anecdotal, but I would say that there's not necessarily the same kind of brand stickiness with that. Like I don't, I want to use. I'm stuck with Apple. Like I, I'm committed to it with my phone, but I have Google Home, and I have. Like I'm willing to try other things or use whatever's best to integrate with all of those things that you just talked about. So it's not like you are waiting. It's like, I'm only going to get the Apple stuff because that way it's whatever integration or efficiency there might be in, in getting it with my phone. I don't think I'm thinking about that. I'm not sure about you, but. But even from a trust perspective, Facebook tried to build yeah. a, like their in-home system with that, that whatever, we'll call it a calling they had a piece, yes, piece yes. of hardware where they tried to put it in your house. People don't trust Facebook at all. <laughs> They'll spend their entire day on Instagram and Facebook, but they don't trust it. Um, I think that the only brand trusted as much as Apple would be Amazon. People adore Amazon. They, it's done nothing but make their life sim more simple. Shopping is better. The experience is fantastic. Same-day delivery is insane. In my opinion, they're likely going to be or they are leading the way into the home faster than anybody else. And they probably have such a large um, head start here that it's trivial for everybody else. I think Apple might make some great compelling hardware that will fit into the home, but I would be more interested, given that, that I make most of my orders through Amazon, to have the Alexa set up. And that's actually the commitment I've made. And we're doing a renovation. I'm going to I'm going to smart home through the Alexa suite. And when I, I go on YouTube, I watch all the videos on how to set it up. It, it seems like it's the most half of it system. will work at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, I mean, it's also affordable hardware where if you think about mm -hmm. attaching an Alexa versus attaching an, an Apple home to your, to your house, yeah. it's three times more expensive to go the Apple route. And this stuff is likely not going to work. So you need to, it's hard to spend that much money and then have it not work for you. Mm -hmm. And I find that um, talking to Siri is the worst experience. It's honestly crazy. And I, I was going to say it's um, earlier just about you talking about the the investment that Amazon's making. And sorry, what was the name of the Alexa? No, the, the the company they acquired. Anthropic. Sorry, Anthropic. I think it's been largely communicated the narrative, obviously, and the, the hype around AI and what that means for the consumer in terms of using an AI you know, calendar add-on or a chat GPT or search engine or whatever it might be. The other thing that's really interesting is obviously they're making these investments into improving their internal processes within these companies and what the to improve the, the product that's then coming to consumers as well, not necessarily like it's not going to be marketed as an AI product per se, but the development of that product will have AI features in terms of the investment that they've made into their companies. So it's, I kind of think of it as like, you know, internal 
develop internal business development of of their current system and how AI can improve that, not necessarily just giving an AI product to the end consumer. So, because that's the thing that you don't hear about. It's like, okay, well, we're taking on this piece and this is what we've now created this app that's going to be an Amazon app that's AI generated to use it. No, it's about how is the AI going to improve the existing things that are already there, which is also, I'm assuming, probably the driving factor. No, completely. And you know what? I, and this is, kind of driven by what you just mentioned the fact that they're trying to break up these big seven tech companies it feels as though they're the only ones making meaningful investment in tech future and like in the past that used to be the government yeah and now the government is more so focused on funding war efforts and um uh, social programs which likely is where it should be focusing um and letting the the businesses take those big risks but without scale and size it's very difficult to make a 10-year 15 billion dollar investment in to anything if you don't have the type of profit margins that these big businesses have so who's going to do it if they don't so i feel as it's I'm, i'm torn as someone who believes wholeheartedly that apple's app store needs to be spun out and be its own business I also find it challenging to see how we pr- continue to progress forward and see the type of um, technological advancements to c- solve climate, our climate problem, climate crisis, to solve a whole host of social yeah. issues. All of these things that need to be done, because in my estimation, we are not going to go in reverse from a consumption perspective. I don't believe that we're going to somehow magically um, solve climate by consuming less if we don't innovate in a from a carbon reduction extraction perspective we're likely going to melt the 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 earth i think that at some point we have to have this this argument it's going to be on the backs of these titans at the end of completely and they're so well managed that they've broken all laws of investing and um the only way in which they don't continue to dominate is through anti-competitive um policy mm-hmm. so which like i think that's like, again from a narrative standpoint it's really easy to have this as a huge conflict piece that's like you can't do this you can't do this okay maybe they can't but let's also talk about what they can do and let's like <laughs> work together you know not mm-hmm. not to sound too too soft here but just like at the end of the day like there's you there's a lot of negative in the discussion around government versus these tech titans or versus these massive companies and anti-competitiveness, et cetera. But all like the things that you just talked about, we're fighting all of these other issues that are affecting our globe, our country, et cetera. There should also be some olive branch action going on saying, okay, like, you know, we need to work together here on, on some things. We need to negotiate and, Working together, I think, will have a lot more of a net benefit than trying to drive them away at the end of the day. Yeah. And drive away the innovation in, because there's obviously there's been some negative things that have come from uh, them yeah. becoming what they are. But if we can work with them on obviously trying to improve whatever that might be for small business and for consumers, then I'm all for that. But you can't just stop it there. You have to say, and if you do this or if we can work together on this, then like let's give you this opportunity to continue to innovate and help us in this manner where you can continue to profit and 
you know, diversify your business as well. Yeah, 100%. So Alberta eyes more than half of CPP's assets and report on provincial plan. Mm -hmm. So what I want to stay away from here is the politics behind all of this. And I kind of want to just talk a little bit about the facts. And numbers. Yeah. And numbers. And whether or not this is a good idea. Like, I don't want to talk about the politics of it because I don't even care about it. It feels like a leverage play, but who cares? Let's just, as a you and I being contributors to the CPP plan, um, employees, everyone listening to this is likely someone who benefits from it. If you're not in Canada, you don't. Even if you aren't in, but are a Canadian citizen, this matters to you. Um, at first glance, do you think that this is a good idea? At some point, just from the 30,000-foot uh, view of this, we as Albertans need to stop making enemies of the rest of the country. If we ever want to get anything done, when are we going to start being nice? I understand that a lot of the time it feels like the only way you get something done is if you're a hard-nosed um, person and you, you, you fight and claw for what you need and you deserve. But when it comes to at least our country, it feels like it's never actually worked. Um, we've had a conservative government for a, a number of years now, and it feels as though, to me, um, we're not any further ahead with pushing through pipelines and things that benefit the Albertan um, way of life because we've been hard-nosed and because we've been sticking our middle finger up to the rest of the country. Which, like, I mean, I think a lot of that is based on the fact that you are a conservative government of... Is it one, two, three, three or four across the province versus like you're in the minority from a federal standpoint mm. and who would have the, the gavel when it comes to approve, approving some of the things that would be policy wise that would be required in order to uh, meet your goals provincially. You don't have the ultimate power, which is like, I guess totally from your standpoint, again, we're not, I'm not going to get into an opinion on either side, but the, the way this plays is that. This is easy to talk about, something that voters and citizens of Alberta and the country, et cetera, will understand in terms of CPP. I know that. Like, I yeah, know that I'm I. I'm going to get that. Yeah. And, and, and like, I contribute to that and I understand, like, you know, it's also something that some people are like, why do I have to, can I opt out of this? And it's like, no, you, you cannot, um, unless you meet, you know, very specific things uh, where, you, where you don't have to contribute to it. But, it feels like a easy thing to bring up in the media and to, again, create a narrative around to then use as if they can get enough support for it or can create enough of a leverage piece with it, then they can use it to get something that they actually want. So the old bait and switch. And because it's, it's, I think at the end of the day, the, the original narrative around or the way that they were approaching, um, I guess having an argument with the rest of the country for the past however many years has not worked. So let's find something else that we can discuss on. And that's what it feels like to me. But I think, I'm not sure where this, did you pick out this article? Yeah, this is from the Global Mail. Is it from the Global Mail? It's a great article and it's unbiased, like you said. Like it just lays out facts. 100%. I, I'm a big, I really like Trevor Toom. I think he does a really good job um, trying to straddle the line of bias whether it be politically or even just different views on different things. He's a really smart guy. Um, I believe he's a, um, a professor of economics at the U of C. Um, I could be wrong about that. But CBP was started in 1966. Um, who would have thought 
the, the, the boomers would create something for themselves. <laughs> um, so the maximum annual pension as of 2021 um, at age of 65 is $14,110 per year. The average person gets around $7,437. Um, the government fund or the CPP is totaling around $500 billion. It's pretty darn big. Mm -hmm. I think what's important for us to understand and to, to, to look at is first and foremost, a lot of people I work with always assume that, especially young people, millennials, wrongfully assume that we're not going to have a pension plan by the time that they become 65 years old. Mm. And I wanna draw their attention to the performance of our CPP pension plan over the last, call it 15 years. It has compounded at 10 plus percent over that period. Yeah, that good. is incredibly good. It's way better than the TSX. Way, way better. The S&P 600 has compounded just over 5.5. They are great asset managers. They've outperformed AIMCO. So to do it because of performance would be, a, in my opinion, poor decision if you're looking back at past performance. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, that combined with the fact that if you are someone who views themselves as a Canadian, not an Albertan, mm -hmm. and maybe perhaps doesn't want to retire in Alberta, mm -hmm. or isn't going to work their entire lives in Alberta, mm -hmm. and maybe they earn income in Ontario or BC or Saskatchewan or, or, on, or New Brunswick, you view this as being a nice diversified place to be contributing money to for your retirement in the future. If we somehow figure out a way to pull the Alberta portion out, that then further constricts us as Albertans. And it then increases the bureaucracy that will be then included into the management of multiple pensions that you will then be contributing to because you diversify where you work. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that you're taking your, not that the AIMCO, if that, I think that's who that's obviously proposed would be the, the asset managers and allocators here, but and they're very good, <laughs> by the way. No, yeah, 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 nothing. I guess I'm just saying that you are then you're putting again. Maybe I'm not sure what Aimco's outlook would be if it'd be the same as what the the this, the current asset managers would be from the CPP standpoint. But like you are changing that outlook, whether the, like whether it be focused on regionally versus nationally. I think that would also be something to consider. And I think one of the biggest um, talking points out of this news article or this, sorry, this, this news story is about how we have higher total contributions in Alberta. And it's like, yes, we do because relative to our population, like we have a higher percentage of working age population and a higher participation rate who make higher wages than the Canadian average. So then yes, our CPP contribution, our draw on it is higher. also higher, but since we're younger than the rest of the population, we haven't started that. Exactly. Once our d demographics switch, which may never happen, yeah, given um, our the way that it's likely it works, that we yeah. will then take an outsized portion of that pension plan. Um, the real benefit here, I think, comes in two ways, and it's one: the Fraser Institute has suggested it could be as low our contribution rate. So right now, you pay up to sixty-one thousand five hundred dollars, or roughly in that range, nine point nine percent of that amount goes towards CPP. The Fraser Institute has effectively suggested that Albertans, in order to meet its, its withdrawal requirements, would only need to contribute 5.85%, which would be a significant reduction and would then put more money in our pockets, which on its face is attractive 
right? But in my opinion, I think it's short-sighted. And also, um, as somebody who like wholeheartedly believes in diversification of assets and the fact that people don't view the dangers of 50 years down the road. We, we underestimate what can happen in 10 years, but overestimate what we can, we can get in a year. It's, it's a reason why we make poor decisions a lot of the time. And we, under, we don't view how, how incredible our impacts can be over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. We could hypothetically in Alberta start to underperform the rest of the country. Yep. And then we would then be in a reverse predicament. Yep. So as a Canadian, do you not just want to have that as being a um, diversified factor, be fine with with carrying the lion's share of contributions on a per capita basis. Be proud of it. Be proud of it. Um, I don't. I don't view it as being like. Don't tell the rest of the country that you're doing it. Make sure they know <laughs> it. Make sure they yeah. are thankful. Yeah. But at the same time, take pride in it. Take care of your your feathered countrymen. And you know what? I, I, I'm of the opinion this also has to come from the other end of the, uh, of the country as well. They need 100%. to recognize that we do a lot of great things for them. Um, perhaps they shouldn't be um, making it so difficult for us to contribute so much. Maybe we need to work together. But that's a whole other story for yeah, another day. Gets into that. Um, but I don't think we should be pushing for this because of the managing of the assets. I think it's been an incredible, or it's seen incredible performance. CPP is like lauded across the entire globe. We are, we have one of the greatest managed pensions in the world and we should be proud of that. AIMCO, again, one of the greatest managed pensions in the world. Neither one of them do I think would do a poor job moving forward. However, it's not going to lower the cost of it. Yeah. I don't believe that over a hundred years, my children will be born in Alberta. They'll likely have kids in Alberta. I think that for their best interest, it's best to have it managed countrywide and um, continue to, so long as we all have the same passport, we should all have the same pension. Um, and I believe it, it lowers our risks as, as Albertans. Yeah, I think it, like, I think um, the article goes on to summarize kind of obviously his conclusion from this and and summary and i think i largely agree with it but i think it boils down to the decision if it were to be made would be kind of a short-term or a short-sighted type short-term benefit right out benefit the gate, out of the gate for sure and, and i can i can get on board with that or sorry with that line of thinking but the unknowns in the future are too much of a risk in a you're 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 hedging a huge bet <laughs> against yeah. this and it's 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 difficult from the numbers standpoint to truly understand what that what that future risk could be and then not to mention just the kind of socioeconomic risk with it as well and do we really want to continue to distance ourselves i think some people in this province would say yes i think we've seen the support for distancing ourselves from the rest of the country but again, I think it is not in the best interests of of the of the country and the and the, and the province as a whole on a long term basis. But yeah. I would just suggest definitely if you obviously Globe and Mail has a paywall, I think they maybe might let you read five a month or whatever. But this was a good article and it laid out a lot of great facts and information behind the talking points that aren't necessarily discussed in depth in um, you know in the five minute news story. So. And Trevor Toom owns his content, so you can actually go to his website and read the oh, stuff that he contributes okay. to. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's and usually he makes a a shortened thread on Twitter if you or X or however. <laughs> anyway, um, 
moving on. Mm-hmm. I think we, we yeah, it's great. It's big that. big news story this last week, and yeah. I think it's just It'll be again, to see where it goes. like anything else, um, make sure that you're doing a, a few minutes more of a of a of a read on on these things to make sure you understand the whole story. So let's finish quickly with the Powerball winner. Ooh. He's been making news recently. Yes. Um, so what was it? The grand total? I think proceeds? two point. Hold on. Uh, 2.04 billion dollars he won mm, mm-hmm. and um, for those that don't play the powerball in america which i am one of them i had to research the difference between the lump sum versus annuity for their lottery winnings mm-hmm. um so i think he took uh he took the the lump sum how which, old how old is he that's he's in his i believe late 20s early 30s okay and because I, I i was not to cut you off but like so on the annuity play if you were to pass away how does it like do do you get your money still good question yeah okay um so this annuity pays out for 29 years okay and for this guy he would have then took uh, an annuity of 206.9 million dollars over 29 years yeah and to be uh clear too in the states all that's taxable yes yeah uh i should he's not gonna make he's not gonna get paid 206 million per year over 29 years that's wrong um the difference being that somebody who won the Powerball could have either taken one point or 122 million in a lump sum, or over 29 years, the 206.9 million divided up by 20, divided by 29. Okay. And then, but the the tax impact is effectively equal because the 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 max rate you hit every year by f- like oh easily. yeah sorry I mean yeah, given given yeah. given everything like there's no laddering of tax rates forward. when you're earning 200. And, well, we'll call it a hundred million a year, right? Like it barely ladders up. So I would take it as a lump sum as well and then invest it and assume that you're 10%. Com- I give it to CPP, let them compound it at 10%. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what was most interesting is that this guy, when you give people money, they do weird things. And he's bought three mega mansions in California. He just recently bought one in Beverly Hills for to a total of $47 million. Imagine the property taxes on that thing. <laughs> no. Could you? <laughs> So no. he's spent of his 700 plus million that he received after taxes in lump sum. He res- he spent 120 odd million dollars or 100 million dollars on real estate. That's not a good idea. I do this for a living. These clients would be tough to deal with. Imagine like a capital call cuz you know he didn't mortgage this thing. I, yeah. I I'm going to need 47 million wired to me. <laughs> I just bought a house 3 you know what would be even worse though being his neighbor you are leonardo dicaprio or you're like taylor swift you own this house for like 80 million and oh this house next to me just went up for sale for 47 million bucks this young person's buying it who is it powerball guy you're trying to be like a super (laughs) broker in beverly hills and you get the powerball guy next to you that would be a tough sell uh on a go forward basis with your community but I don't, yeah, like you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is going to be pissed if the Powerball guy moves in. <laughs> if you're going to buy three properties, too, like why all in the same state? I, you know what? I don't know for sure that he did that. I know the first one was, and the third one was. I don't know if the second one was, but even then, it all makes no sense to me. <laughs> three super mansions is not something that I would do, but I'm going to pose this to you: What would you do if you were gifted, Ooh. or you won seven hundred plus million U.S. dollars, and you then had to spend it? Or at least manage it. Yeah, managing it. I mean, 
That's tough. I might go back to kind of the, uh, the, um, in a sense, like we t- you talk about like your current earnings and like the 50, 30, 20 rule or whatever. So would you like, move from Alberta? Um, no, I'd always keep my home base here. I think, I think that's, I think it's easy for people to say that though, when you have roots down somewhere, yeah. like and you have family and stuff like that. Like I think, I think it's key to be around that if that's important to you. So I think that would always be the case. Would I be buying vacation properties or properties that are in places that mean something to me? Like, yes, I would, but I wouldn't be buying mega mansions. I would be buying something that's again, me, I would be kind of maybe more so practical about that and say, I'd love to have a place here. Like where my dad grew up, I'd love to have a place in maybe like Hawaii or something like that, that I love that I love to go to. And I've been to a bunch of times. I'm like, yes, I could see myself spending a bunch of time here. Some land. In <laughs> no, see, I, yeah, that's the thing is like, I feel like when you obtain that amount of money, then you, it's really important, obviously from a mindset standpoint to realize like, number one, I lucked into this. And number two, you know, I, I shouldn't change everything about my life because of it. I feel like that's obviously the age old story about Powerball winners, lottery winners in general. Um, so obviously I don't know, like, what would I do? I I would take most of it and I would invest it. And then I would buy a couple properties that I really, really would want to have in terms of actually going to, and then maybe use them as rental properties, obviously. in the, the six months that I'm spending here with my family, would I keep working? I think I would. I don't, I think that you need purpose still. And thank God it's still going towards something. And, but the other thing too, like, honestly, is like, if I really, I've always thought about this, like, there's a couple of things in my head that I've always wanted to go back to school to do and, and learn more about whether that be actually in like the traditional university sense or just be able to commit more time to it. And I feel like obviously uh, what money can give you in, in terms of material things is good, but then like time, right. And that, that would be kind of the, the coolest thing would be able to have the ability to have that freedom of what's everyone's working towards, right. Is having more free time to do things that you actually want to do. So, um, boring answer for sure, but three properties potentially all in California that are all mega mansions, (laughs) not top of my list. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So So on the Taylor Swift front, I mean, I feel like we're kind of turning into a Taylor Swift podcast, but she created waves. Obviously, all the Swifties are now NFL fans because she's dating See how many Travis Kelsey. Followers he added on. Yeah, so I just say Pomp uh, had a tweet and kind of summarized. So he played on Sunday, obviously. Um, Taylor Swift was there. He had seven catches for 69 yards, hashtag nice, and a TD. Gained 300,000 plus social media followers in 24 hours. Plus 400% increase in merchandise sales for his jerseys and related things. And it is now a top five selling jersey in the NFL. All within 24 hours. All because being on there. he's dating Taylor Swift. And I would say mostly because of, so shout out to our friend Jared, who's a despicable Bears fan. And <laughs> if it wasn't for the Bears being so brutal and Kansas City blowing them out 41 nothing, they wouldn't have been showing Taylor Swift on the broadcast every three seconds because there would have actually been a football game to watch. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the case. So Travis also has the... The only thing the that supersedes that. the NFL in America is the... the Probably Taylor Swift. Maybe. Apparently, so there was a story. I'm not sure if you saw it either. I, 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 who knows if this is true or not, but I, I saw multiple tweets about it. So in KC, obviously not a bit like that's not a big market. Their stadium is not like state of the art per se in terms of probably like kind of security and whatnot or how it's set up. So like she was in a box, obviously with like like 
Kelsey's box, his family, everything yeah. like that in there. But I think it's like if you're leaving that, like you have to kind of go through general to a degree. Like there's not like a direct access to like the There's basement. not an elevator up to there. And if there is, like there's still a portion of it that you have to go through. So apparently they had to like sneak her out in like a popcorn machine. You're like, kidding to get her me. down. Yeah. There's like there was a few stories about that. And like they had to be very creative in terms of getting her out of there because obviously, I mean, as soon as her like she can't even if she wanted to show up incognito, like put her hair in a bun and sunglasses, sunglasses and a, and a bucket mask. hat kind of thing, you're, she's still going to get found out, right? Oh, yeah. It's impossible to go anywhere. So as soon as her face was shown, it's like, I mean, how many Swifties were at the KC game? Don't know. But enough, enough, to, <laughs> enough to probably make a ruckus. Anyways, there was probably people waiting outside, like probably drove oh, sure. three hours to sit outside to get a glimpse of her, right? So. It's just this, this, we talked about the phenomenon of her and her, you know, recent everything, uh, in terms of her tour and just her, the being the, the, the media darling right now, like the queen of pop. Like, I mean, this is, this is just the instance again of, um, the fact, like, I mean, from an athlete standpoint, you kind of had, you know, Michael Jordan who reached that kind of level of fame. You had obviously like Michael Jackson, the Beatles, like this is like legit on that level in terms of, I think it's the biggest ever. Like it's just of the craziness, right? So she's bigger than the Beatles. She's bigger than Elvis. <laughs> so it's Drake, insane. But it is. It is true. I mean, yeah. It's 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 very hard for me to conceptualize. I I th- I'd like to think that I don't hold anybody in that regard. Like other than like <laughs> like I don't act that way about anything. Yeah, that excited about anything to see someone, to be around someone, to be in someone's presence that much. Is there anyone? That I respect you would, it. Is there but anyone? Anybody? No, I don't think so. You and me what were twenty five feet away from Drake, and we loved him, and we didn't act like that. I so. know. What about Barack Obama? No, like I, The Rock. No. So like, I just don't like. What's the point of acting like? Like, I mean, internally, maybe if you can feel that way, but like the way that. The, the Donald Trump, the hysteria, the hysteria around the fandom with some of these folks and like literally people's lives dedicated to following their every move and everything like that. It just feels like, I mean, I, I can love and respect someone and love their art and love their material and or love their sport and respect the hell out of them. But I just, I think it's just a waste of time. <laughs> Is there <laughs> anyone you would force selfie with if given the opportunity? Like couldn't deny getting one. You'd have to go and get one. Mm, I don't know. Not off the top of my head. I feel like, yeah, like, you know what? If I was like going into an elevator and like one of my favorite art, like if Drake was in there or like if Ice was in an elevator with Taylor Swift or something, like someone like that popular, like, yeah, like I would be like, would you mind? I wouldn't be crying and begging kind of thing, but I'd be like, would you mind if I took a picture with you? And like, that's probably regular for them anyways. Mm. So I guess like, yes, I would do that, but it's just like, Again, I have a hard time conceptualizing their fame. I have it really doesn't make any sense to me in terms of the hysteria around falling. I think I would only them. do it with a less famous person because I would okay, be the only yeah. thing. Because you you would be like, this guy's gonna be famous in five years. No, so I would no, be super no. trendy. Although if you did go back, <laughs> my opinion of Taylor Swift was she was gonna blow up. But <laughs> <Okay>. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> moving on, I have one prediction to finish this thing out. Okay. Um, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are going to get married. Perfect. I hope we... And there will be no song about any breakup. There'll be no breakup song? No. It's just nice to see that America is healing. Prom king, prom queen. It's perfect. <laughs> it's, it's, the only thing that could make it better is if Travis Kelsey was a quarterback. 
unfortunately, he's just the greatest tight end to ever live. So, yeah. Cam, you got any recommendations? No, I'll take your counterpoint. We'll write that on the board, and we'll, <laughs> we'll listen to the breakup song in nine months. How about that? Sounds good. Talk to you next week.